0: All right, so we're going to be. Uh, so, if you don't know me, my name is Gunnar Inge Gunnarsson. Um, it, it's okay if you're not from here. If you butcher the pronunciation, uh, especially for you Americans who are very self-conscious about that, uh, if you start with a G and anything to follow, I'll I'll respond. Um, but today we're going to be jumping into the book of Matthew, chapter twenty-seven. And we're going to be picking up in verse 27. If you don't know how we usually do it as a church, we do take exceptions to this, but we usually stick with going through a book of the Bible. So right now we've been going through the book of Matthew. Uh, Before that, what did we go before that? Book of Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very different book. Uh, So right now we're coming to the end of book of Matthew, and then we're going to have a few one-off Easter services dealing with prophecy about uh, the coming Messiah and his death and resurrection and that type of stuff. And then we're going to be jumping into the book of Acts after that. But if you would turn with me, uh, what Elliot laid, uh, said very well uh, last week was that there are basically two types of trials that we're looking at when we look at Jesus going to the cross. Uh, first, there is the religious trial with the religious leaders where he stands before them. And they're basically trying to convince the people that he is indeed a heretic, that he is claiming to be God when he is not, in their opinion. And so that is the first trial that is over with. But one of the things that was happening at this day and age was that the Jews, the Jewish people, Israel, was occupied by Rome. And so they didn't have the authority to uh, give the death penalty to anyone. And so they needed to convince the Romans to hand them down a death penalty to Jesus, whom they saw as a heretic claiming to be God who wasn't really God. And so now they have to convince the Romans, who really don't care about heresy, according to the Jews, that he needs, they need to kill this man. And so they come to the Romans with this one specific plan, not to try him as a heretic that comes to claim to be God when he isn't, but rather to come someone claiming to be king when only Caesar is king. So they're trying to get the Romans on their side by convincing them that he is indeed a threat to Rome. And so we pick up in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 31, that I would like to just read for us as we begin. And we're going to work our way through this chunk by chunk, going all the way down to verse 44. So here it says in Matthew 27... Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put scarlet rope on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him off the rope and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So they gather him into the headquarters with the whole battalion. Um, this was a show of authority. This was a show of force. This was a show of mockery. Little do they know that actually the one in charge of this whole situation is the one suffering in the middle of it. It doesn't look like he's in charge, but he is indeed the one with all the authority in that situation. Now, one of the things that I would like for us to dwell on a little bit today as we, as we consider the authority of Jesus and how he uses his authority versus, to a lesser extent, our authority and the authority that God has given to us um, and how we use our authority. We have the tendency to usually view maybe big people in the media or something like that that have a giant platform and say, well, they have, uh, or well, we actually have a name for these people, right? Influencers. They have influence. They can speak to the people. They can have an effect on people's lives and hearts and, and opinions. But in reality, all of us, to some extent, have authority in our lives and have a platform where people are looking at you Uh, to to see what they think about something. Like, for instance, there is no influencer that's going to affect the lives of my children as much as I will or Swava, my wife, will. There's just no one like that. And yes, your platform may not involve thousands of people listening to you, but there are people listening to every one of us. And so as we look at the authority of Jesus Christ and how he uses his authority in this situation, I want us to consider as well, What authority do we have and and how we use our own authority? And so, because we see it in this situation, the one with all the authority, literally the creator of the universe, the one who holds their life in his hands is the one being mocked and beaten. And so having the authority doesn't necessitate that you get your way. In fact, when you look at Jesus... All of his life, he has the authority. All of his life, though, he's dealing with being despised, being rejected, being mocked for who he is. Yet he do, doesn't. He comes and he says, I lay my life down. That's how Jesus uses his authority. He came not to be served, but to serve, in his own words. Now, there's a, a, a famous saying that um, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. That if you just give certain people enough power, and you may know this person, they go on a power trip over like, uh, they get to pick the snacks in the snack machine or whatever. It can be something minute like that, but if they give them a little bit of power, it corrupts them absolutely. Now, if you give someone, as you, as you study history, and you, you give some people a lot of power, it corrupts absolutely. Millions die, thousands die for the purpose and the desire of that one person to do what they want. But you look at Jesus and you say that, you know, like we might think this in a fallen world that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but you look at the life of Christ and he's different. He's not there to get his own way. He's there for a specific purpose to lay down his life for us, for those who don't have power. Now, when we think about the question, what what does authority look like? What does power look like? What are the images that pop into our minds? So for some of us, it may be politicians. Some of us, it may be people who own and run companies. Some of us, it may be people who have a lot of money. That's what power, that's what authority looks like. But I wonder if we would ask a thousand people on the streets, what does authority look like? What does power look like? Most of the pictures that would come to mind would be these types of people. Very few of them would read to you Matthew 27, 27 to 31. (laughs) Because that's not what authority looks like in our modern sort of secular mind. No person with authority would ever put up with being mocked, being beaten, being rejected, especially when he has the authority over the people doing these things to him. And so when I was reading this, I was asking myself the question, when when we think about authority, when we think about power, and we think about the power that we all have, do we think of it in a worldly sense or in a godly sense? Because here in our text today, we are reading about a suffering Messiah who is our Savior, but he's also our example. He's showing us what we should look like. Ultimately, our, our goal in life as Christians should be that, you know, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. And so we're trying to reflect who he is and give him the glory. And so we look to Scripture and we look to passages like this, and it doesn't look great. Right? It's not what we set out to do, you know, on a nice Saturday evening. I don't want to be mocked. I want to get in my way, right? Now, usually um, in a crucifixion, there were four Roman soldiers who would escort the prisoner through the city. Uh, I went to Jerusalem in January of last year, and there were all these different... <laughs> oh, have I mentioned it a lot of my sermons? Is that the, that the point? <laughs> oh, you went to Jerusalem. Uh, <laughs> so I got to go to Jerusalem. Let me underline that. I went to Jerusalem. Uh, so I was walking down these streets. They looked super old, right? And there were all these... The Via della is supposedly the way that Jesus walked as he, as he walked to Golgotha, the, the cross, and he died. And there's all these weird things happening there. And they, you know, it looks like a corner of a wall that's got like a little imprint in it. And here's like, oh, this is where Jesus stumbled. And he put his hand right here on this rock. And that's why it's got indented into the rock. Like this. And I started asking someone who was working there actually as like an archaeologist. I was like, are these really the streets that Jesus walked on? And he's like, no, they're about 10 feet underground. <laughs> and all these walls are built maybe, you know, 600 years after he walked on earth. And so there's a lot of stories about this, so I want to clarify, like some of some of the stuff and misconceptions we have. So, what what would happen during a crucifixion is that four Roman soldiers would lead the the, the people away. Now, here, or or lead them to the trial and lead them to the death. Here we have a battalion. This is six hundred soldiers. This is very abnormal. And it's not because they needed extra protection. It's not because they wanted to keep the disciples away. It's to increase the mockery of Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. We have this story written down. We know for a fact there weren't any disciples in there. So if your mind works like mine, I'm always thinking, who heard this? Like <laughs> who, who was there to tell this story? So apparently, at least someone in there, it seems to me, That be the the best hypothesis, of course, God could have revealed what happened there through supernatural ability, or it could have been that someone there saw what Jesus was going through and eventually came through faith how Jesus reacted at the governor's headquarters. He came to be a witness of what had happened on the inside, and that's how we know this. But you think about this large group of people, and you think about this phenomenon that we have called herd thinking, right? We do a lot of stupid things in groups. That's, that's, that's what herd thinking is, basically. We do a lot of stupid things when other people are doing stupid things with us. But here, this is taking on a way more serious note. It's not just a stupid thing. This is heinous. This is disgusting. And here you have this large groups of hundreds of people there, and you think about history, and you think about all the despicable things committed in groups, and I, I, I sort of stop and wonder, what drives this behavior? Like, why, why do we feel like we won't be exposed, our sins won't be exposed? Is it because we can hide behind other faces? Is it because we don't feel like we're the only one committing the sin? Because we have a lot of people around us? But the reality is, that each and every soul represented in that group got new. was there he knew exactly what they were thinking it doesn't matter if we're in a quiet room or in a crowd in uproar God knows what's going on in our heart he knows what's going on in our heads he knows what we do but apparently there someone got guilty right looks like it someone got guilty and and it's not just guilt right (laughs) <laughs> that's what a lot of people have the misconception of Christianity that we, we like guilt that we want, want people to feel guilty but here's the thing there's guilt that leads to death and there's guilt that leads to hope in Christ and repentance right there is um, but here it's, it's not guilt alone someone there views this he feels the guilt he feels the weight of his sin and he repents he turns to Christ and apparently is a witness to all of these things now, in the previous chapters, the religious leaders of Israel, they're mocking Jesus and they're persecuting him for being the son of God. Right? They strip him naked in front of... Uh, but here you have the Roman officials mocking him for being a king. And you see these themes and that you, you think just... They put a lot of effort into this. They put a lot of thought into this. You see, like, they strip him naked in front of hundreds of people. They put a scarlet robe on him. And the thinking here is back in the day, having clothes that were purple or scarlet was really expensive. Those were the most expensive colors. And so only the elites of society, usually royalty, would wear these colors. And so they're mocking him by placing a scarlet robe on him, saying, you know, here's this supposed king of the Jews. Uh, they dress him to mock him. They put on on a crown as a king would wear, but this crown was a, a crown of torture and of mockery, made up of thorns. Right, and it's I, th- I think we can miss the impact of what's happening here. Like, can you can you imagine a crown of thorns being placed on your head? You feel it piercing your skin. I just feel right here. There's not a lot of skin before the skull starts taking over, and you feel the scraping of a crown coming down your skull, someone pressing it on you. You think about the pain of that happening. And they're doing this to mock him. One of the things that you would have back in the day was people with scepters, right? You have some some people walking around with that today, too, like staffs, uh, pimped-out staff, basically. Like uh, Scepters was basically... uh, a big stick that was either made of gold or wood. It was decorated with large stones and, and super nice things. And here you have the people trying to offend Jesus, trying to mock him by giving him this thin reed. This is all done so that they can make, a, make fun of him as this supposed king of the Jews. And then they move from just you know, using props to mock him and they move to the words yelling out, Hail, the king of the Jews! And this is intended both to to mock Jesus, but also to mock the Israelites. Like, really, Jews? This is the best thing you could come up with? This guy? But in reality, that crown of torture would, in the end, carry more power than any other decorated and gold-laden crown that any other king on earth would bear. This kingdom would extend farther than any other empire has ever done on earth. The weak reed would be more powerful than any mighty scepter of any mighty king on earth. And this mocked and beaten and murdered king would reign over all kings when he showed that he defeated death. Now, if you... If you just think of the imagination and the effort that they put into this mockery of Jesus, it almost poses a challenge to me and to us. Like, man, look at all of this. Like, they had clearly thought about this. Like, you think about the fact that a scarlet robe was really expensive. Someone really wanted to mock Jesus in this way, went out of their way to get a scarlet robe, just to put it on for a few seconds, and mock him as a king. And it almost... It's almost a challenge to me, do I, do I put so much imagination and effort into not my mockery of Jesus, but my worship of Jesus? Am I this intentional, not in this way, but the opposite way, to actually give him the attention and the worship that he actually deserves? And There's a, a quote by Spurgeon that I really love when he was talking about this text. He said, But my brethren, bad as man is, Methinks he never was so bad as when gathering all of his spite, his pride, his lust, his desperate defiance, his abominable wickedness into one mouthful, he spat into the face of the Son of God himself. All of this mockery of Jesus points to I think another kind of mockery that is very different but strikingly familiar. While the the Romans declared Jesus to be king and dressed him up as king, they only used their words, right? If you'd only have what they said, hail the king of the Jews, and not the context of how they're saying it or why they're saying it, you'd be like, those are the right words, right? Right? King of the Jews, yeah, he is. He's king of us all. But you look at like these words and how empty they are. He wasn't really king. It was a show. This is, is sort of what I think of when I think of nominal Christians, right? Christians who, who say the right things might say amen at all the right times, might you know, Clap and shout might be all super great at coming in on Sunday services and gathering with the church, doing all the right things, but just not having a changed heart. Singing praises to Jesus on a Sunday, confessing him to be their Lord and Savior, but when Wednesday rolls around, you'd have a hard time really identifying anything in their life that looks anything remotely different from the people around them. It doesn't affect how they spend their time. It doesn't affect how they work. It doesn't affect how they, how they pray or love others around them. Their life is strikingly familiar, familiar, uh, similar. Well, familiar and similar, familiar, uh, fam- familiar, uh, to everyone around them. It looks the same, right? Like, I think this person who, who posted this question to me, it was not his original thought. He wasn't. Uh, But he came to me and asked me, if someone were to look at your life for an entire week, would they have enough evidence to uh, convict you as a Christian? It was a great thought. But when I think about the mockery of Jesus here, these sort of empty words that mean nothing, empty words that were really just a show to them, and I think about this sort of Nominal type of Christianity in name only, it, it mocks different, in a, it mocks Jesus in a different way. Nominal Christianity mocks Jesus just as the Romans did, but it mocks him with our songs. Songs that we sing, maybe loudly, maybe enthusiastically, but just that are nothing more than words, empty words. Prayers that sound like prayers but really are no prayers at all. The church has mocked Jesus by outwardly appearing godly while in reality denying the power of God. The church has mocked him with adoration that is no adoration at all, with worship that's not really worship, with prayer and dependence that's not really prayer and dependence. What is our faith like? as As we view this mockery of Jesus, I think we can stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question, am I mocking Jesus? Am I using his name in vain? Am I saying all the right things while in reality there's no evidence to actually convict me as a Christian? What is our faith like? Is it in word only or name only? Is it songs that we sing worship of Jesus but we're not ready to be a living sacrifice, laying laying our lives down, thinking differently, realizing that our dreams are in the hands of Christ, that he is the one who is in charge of our destiny. Now, in verse 33, Jesus is led away to be crucified. Usually, this happens with a centurion on a horseback leading the way through the city hoping to have as many people in the city to come and watch the spectacle of this dying man walking to his death with the instrument of his death. Um, Because they wanted to make an example of Jesus. They wanted anyone else to to know that whoever dared defy the Roman Empire, this is your fate. So no one else try anything. This was a a scare tactic to keep any rebellions at, at bay. And so they wanted as many people as possible to see this condemned criminal walking to his death. And lo and behold, here we are today still thinking about the example of Jesus. Did you know that the word martyr, it's a Greek word. It's it's used in the New Testament. It means witness. Witness, it, it means that he who is dying is laying a witness for something. And Jesus here in our text, he is a martyr. He is witnessing to us. He is witnessing to us. And, and witnessing is, not, it's, I guess we think about witnesses differently, right? Um, but he's, he's telling us of God's love. He's telling us extent the extent of God's grace for undeserving sinners. Right? He is a witness as he walks to his death little did they know that they didn't just make an example out of him for that city it was far larger than any crowd that gathered there on that day but for generations to come he was an example he was a witness he was a martyr not limited only to rome but the whole of the world would hear about the suffering messiah the murdered messiah the resurrected messiah And here we are, still 2,000 years removed, still talking about the witness, the example made in Jesus. Man, did this backfire on the Romans, right? This was not a witness that caused other people to, to squash rebellions or insurrections or anything like that, but rather it was a witness that testified to the people around, he is different. I need to follow in his footsteps, And you think about, like, there's this, I think, a famous quote by C.S. Lewis where he says that the cross, you think about the symbol of the cross, that's a torturing device, right? Would you think it's strange if you walked in here and we changed that out next week and we had the lethal injection hanging up there, right? A a big syringe and and I was like, why is there a syringe up there? And we're like, oh, it's the lethal injection. Why would you have that as a symbol in your church? <laughs> you know, like, why? Who is the PR person here? <laughs> why do we have a torturing device as the symbol for our faith? Because it's more than that. Right? You, you think about Jesus' words when he, when he talks about being his disciple. What does he say? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. And for us I think we may have romanticized the cross a little bit cuz we wear it around our necks and we have it as earrings and all this type of stuff which is fine I'm not saying that's bad but I'm I'm saying it desensitizes it it, it would be sort of like having a, you know some kind of gun as an earring and people would kind of start looking at you weird like that's a why why is that cool you know but I think it might sort of take away from like just how horrible it was. And C.S. Lewis, that's what I was going to say. C.S. Lewis, he had this quote that the symbol of the cross only became a popular symbol after every, everyone who had seen a crucifixion take place had already died out. Before it was Kiro, which I saw someone with a, with a tattoo on his neck with a Kiro right there. Yeah, so that was the Christian symbol right here. And, um, and before and then after that, the cross became the popular symbol. And so, little did they know that he was being an example, not just to the people in that city, but to anyone outside that city. On that cross, he was paying the debt that he had not incurred. He was laying down his life. He was dying on our behalf so so that we could live in him and for him. He was laying down a, a much larger example than what the Romans had expected. Usually, the Romans, they would have the upright beams at the, at the sort of gates of the city, outside of the city. There would stand these huge beams, uh, the upright beams of the city. And so you think that's where the criminals were forced to, to carry the other uh, cross beam to the place of crucifixion. Usually, this cross beam weighed about 35 to 57 kilos. If, if you don't use kilos, then I say, get your life together and start using kilos. Uh, <laughs> uh, 34 to 57 kilos. Um, most likely, uh, Jesus walked by that upright beam at the at the gates of the city many times throughout his life. Possibly knowing that one day he would hang up there One day as I walk into the gates of the city I will be outside of the city right here Hanging and dying for my people That's amazing to think about When he described discipleship as taking up your cross It wasn't a theoretical idea in their mind It wasn't a romantic idea It wasn't like, yes, you know what? I think I would like to take up my cross today and follow Jesus. They had seen people take up their cross, and it looked horrible. They knew they were the center of mockery. They knew they were basically dead men walking. Yeah, they weren't dead yet, but they were on their way there. There's no way they got out of this situation. They knew the horror, the humiliation, the agony of crucifixion. Taking up your cross wasn't sort of a brisk walk in the park. It wasn't a round trip. It was a one-way ticket. There was no backing out of this. That's what Jesus is trying to convey. Jesus was saying, if you, if you want to follow me, you are committing to die to yourself, to live for me. This is the cost of discipleship. And I don't just want to end there. The reward of discipleship is much more than the cost of discipleship. Right? After you give up trying to be your own God, your own master, your own source of joy, hope, and fulfillment, like that's, that's, that's what a lot of people in Iceland say, You know, I find joy inside of me. And I'm like, how does that work? You know, I was depleted a long time ago. You will see that you find your fulfillment, your hope, and joy in the God who created you and knows what he created you for. That's true life. We were made for God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him, as Augustine used to say. And then we move on to the next verses in 32 to 34. Um, No, no, no. Why does it say... Okay, Matthew 27, 32, 34. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So by Roman law... The Roman soldiers could come up to anyone and say, carry this stuff of mine for one mile. If you were in the, the bounds of the Roman Empire, they could compel you and force you to walk one mile. So if you have ever been thinking about that, uh, that verse in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two It's probably the context of what he's thinking about there. When the Roman soldier comes and compels you, like you have to go with him and carry his stuff for one mile, go with him too. So he goes up to this foreigner there, Simon from Cyrene. This is modern day Libya. Um, now, I can only imagine this was probably the least desirable places to be in. Uh, I know if I was walking someone else's cross, I would be like, okay, I'll walk this man's cross. Someone has to make sure they don't confuse me with a guy that's supposed to die after this. Like, I, I imagine this is a horrible scenario, a scary scenario to be in. But it may be that Simon, this Simon of Cyrene, would come to faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord through these brief moments shared by the side of Jesus taking his cross up to Golgotha, right? In Mark 15, 21, he's describing this same scenario. He's describing that Simon of Cyrene came and picked up his cross, but he mentions that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And like, well, thank you. That's helpful, you know, I guess. How do I apply this to my life? Yes, maybe my husband should be named Alexander, Alexander Rufus, no. Uh, This is, you think about like, okay, what does this mean? it means they were probably known by the early church. The people knew who Alexander and Rufus were, and this was their dad. And so he's writing as though it looks like Simon of Cyrene and his family is known to the church. Beyond that, if you read Romans 16, those, you know, those chapters you usually skip, because it's all like, hey, give my regards to this person, and this person, and this person, and you're like, yeah, 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 let's get there. He mentions Rufus there give my regards to Rufus. So he may have been one of the leaders at the the Church of Rome. Just a brief moment spent with Jesus may have completely changed this man's life. Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus. You can spend a brief moment with Jesus and you experience that you still have a lot of flaws left, right? Right? You have a lot of things that you need to fix in your life, but now you feel the power of God equipping you to fix these things. But you feel like your life has changed. Your mind has changed, your heart has changed. The reason for why you do stuff has changed. A brief moment with Jesus. Man, what an impact I can have. But they offered him this sour wine. It's a cocktail, basically, that the Romans used to dull the senses of the people who are going through a lot of suffering to make it more bearable. And Jesus goes in there, he knows what it is, and he says, no, I'm not going to drink this. I'm going to take the whole pain of this. And then there is 35. We just, in the beginning of that verse, it just says, and when they had crucified him. You know what really interesting fact about the crucifixion of Jesus the most detail you will find about how Jesus was crucified was written hundreds of years before he arrived. It's all in prophecy. Like this, These are six words, and then they crucified him. Not a whole lot of detail. You go to Isaiah 52, 53, you'll, you'll see a lot of detail there. When is that written? 800 years before he comes. You go to Psalm 22, when is that written? 600 years before he comes. There you get the most detail about what Christ actually went through, and it's before crucifixion was even a thing. Like, how would you describe to someone who's like a prophecy saying, you pierced my hands and my feet, and it's like, how did that happen? What kind of fall, you know, like, how would you fall and hurt yourself on all hands and feet? You know, crucifixion wasn't a thing by then. But these six words here on the screen, and and when they had crucified him, They're easy to read, but they're hard to fully comprehend. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans not only to kill someone, but to do it slowly and painfully and in a way to humiliate them. I just want to read you these few lines. Here's what Dr. William Edward wrote about crucifixion in the Journal of American Medical Association. He said, the victim's back was first torn open by the scourging, then opened again as the congealing, clotting blood came off with a clothing that was removed at the place of crucifixion. Right? Usually when we have the image of Jesus Christ on the cross, he's got this little private area taken, taken care of his clothes. Probably not the case. This was a way to mock someone. Right? He was probably completely naked on that cross. He says, while they attached to the upright cross, each breath would cause these painful wounds on the back to scrape against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. you imagine all the scorching that's gone on with Jesus' back? When you're trying to breathe on a cross, you're rubbing your back up against the rough wood of the cross. It says, driving the nails through the wrist uh, severed the large midian nerve. So when he was crucified, it was not here, as many imagine. Uh, I think one of them mentioned that if it was, it would rip through your hand, the body. Uh, But it was through your wrist, and it would cut this nerve. And he says, the the stimulated nerve caused bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often resulted in a a claw-like grip on the victim's hand. Beyond the severe pain, the, ma- the major effect of crucifixion inhibited normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to lock the respiratory muscles in a uh, state of in- in- inhalation. Inhalation, is that how you say it? Huh? Inhalation. inhalation. Yeah, just say it fast. That's usually how I say it. Inhalation. Inhalation. Uh, <laughs> That's hindering (laughs) exhalation. So it locked him basically in this position where you would breathe in, but you wouldn't be able to breathe out. The lack of adequate respiratory uh, respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which hindered breathing even further. To get a good breath, one had to push against the feet where nails are driven through, And flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders, putting the weight of the body on the feet, producing more pain. And flexing the elbows, twisting also the hands, hanging on the nails, lifting the body for a breath. Also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. That was one breath. To get one breath on that cross, you would raise your hands up. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congestive heart failure, leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken, and the victim was soon unable to breathe. So that's why they break the legs of the thieves on the cross next to him. They can't push up any longer. They're going to suffocate to death. All this, Jesus did willingly, as he said before, no one takes my life. I'm laying it down. As if the bodily pain wasn't enough, Jesus was not only taking on the physical pain, but drinking the wrath of God for our sins. He was suffering so that we didn't have to. He was dying so that we could live. He was taking on the punishment poured out by God the Father on the perfect sacrifice, God the Son, who did this willingly so that we might have hope. Remember this, right? Remember this scenario when we take the words of Jesus lightheartedly. When we take the warnings of Jesus lightheartedly. What breaks my heart is I've heard some pastors talk Talk flippantly about sin, saying stuff like, Jesus doesn't care about your sin, it's all good. Like, I read these verses and it looks like he really cares about my sin. Right? And and there's this, you know, this false narrative. No, he doesn't care about your sin, he just loves you. Well, you know what? I love my kids. I still (laughs) I still hate the fact when they do something wrong and I want them to do better. This isn't an either-or. He can care about your sin and love you at the same time. We see that at the cross, perfectly meeting. He cared enough to die a sinner's death so that we, the sinners, can live in a righteousness. And These six words, and when they had crucified him, are so easy to read, but they are very difficult to comprehend. The horror of this. Now imagine being one of the disciples, or even his mom, Can you imagine what it's like to just view your kid being mocked and ridiculed in front of the whole city, suffering and dying? And how weird it must be to hope for a quick death for your child. Can you imagine the horror of this? Matthew 27, the latter half of 35 and 37 says, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put this charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They strip him naked before nailing his hands to the cross, and they gamble over who gets his clothes. What is so amazing is that these guys probably think they're in charge. Again, they're not. They probably think they have all the authority. Again, they're not. Psalm 22, mentioned earlier, written about, what, 600 years before this? No, is that a psalm by David? Oh, that's like a 1,000 years. Yeah, 1,000 years before this. Um, It says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Like a lot of this, and before Jesus arrives, even rabbis would look at this psalm as a messianic psalm, describing the coming Messiah from Isaiah 53 and other places he gave up everything for us. Even the clothes he was wearing as he hung naked on a cross, he became completely poor for us so that we might become completely rich in him. We go to the last verses. And the two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, whacking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he has said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified uh, with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus was crucified at the center of sinful humanity. Like, look, at it, look at this picture of him. There is the son of God, the creator and sustainer of earth, hanging on a cross in between two thieves. He is at the center of sinful humanity between two robbers, possibly placed in the middle uh, for, for the Jews to highlight. This is the worst of them all. This guy. What a great picture this is. That indeed he was at the center of sinful humanity, dying for us, dying for me. Even... Saying to the Romans, killing them, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Can you imagine saying that to someone like that? After reading the description of what crucifixion looks like. But notice all of the mocking of him. They mock him for who he truly is. They mocked him as a savior, check. As a king, check. As a believer who trusted in God, check. As the son of God, check. All true. All of the above. And listen to what they say. If you really are the son of God, save yourself. That's why I I stop with the question, what does authority look like? Because we know what it looked like to them. If you truly are who you say you are, if you truly have all this power, if you truly have all this ability, why don't you save yourself and show it to us? What does authority look like? Is it always getting away? Is it always getting your way? Is it always using it for your own benefit? And you think about the authority of Jesus as sealed with his rising from the dead. And you think to yourself, what kept Jesus on that cross? It wasn't the nails. It was love. Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? What he was doing on that cross was purchasing, redeeming, sinful sinners who become his children. And through that, he gets glorified. Through that, he gets a family. Through that, ultimately, is the restoration of the world to the way it's supposed to be. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was love. Jesus did something way more extravagant than these guys were suggesting when they said, come down from there. He conquered the grave. Yet those demanding a sign did not believe him then. Right? And, and this, this idea that, man, if, if, if God would just do a sign, you know, we would all be believers. And I, I asked the person, have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> have you... Have you read, you know, what he did in the desert with the Israelites, and and how they how they didn't believe? Like later in Matthew twenty-seven, uh, no, it's actually not in Matthew. When he's talking about the ascension of Jesus, I find, uh, this is in Acts chapter one. He ascended into the the, the sky, <laughs> and they're looking at him. And then there's this one little sentence in there, and some of them did not believe. I was <laughs> just like, what is going on with you? What do you need? <laughs> Uh, it's it's not what we need. Usually, miracles will not will not convince us. We need something more, right? And these guys were asking yeah, for another miracle. They've seen him operate for three years. They know what he's do. They know what he's done. They know what he's doing. And now they're asking for another one. Oh well, if you answer us this time, we'll believe you. Nah, that, that's not going to work. This scenario was the peak of God's love for man to suffer for our salvation, but it was also the summit of man's hatred for God. All at one spot. God wrapped himself in flesh to approach and love his creation, and that is what man did to him, crucified. What does authority look like? Did Jesus have the authority to step down from that cross to show these doubting people that he indeed was who he claimed to be? Absolutely. Did he have the authority to not go through with any of this at all? Absolutely. Did he have the authority to let me live my life, stand before him as a condemned sinner, and send me to hell for eternity? Absolutely. But he didn't use his authority in that way. Look at the bloody cross at Golgotha, and I'm thankful he didn't use his authority to step down from there. But rather, he laid down his right. He laid down his life. He laid down all that he had to be my Savior. And we stand here in worship because Jesus did not seek his right. But how often do we? How are we using our authority? Because he sought not to be served, but to serve. Come and serve us who didn't deserve it. Godly authority doesn't always look like getting your way. It doesn't always look like getting your rights. Sometimes it looks like laying down your life in love. That is how Jesus used his authority. And do we see the same authority, uh, same with the authority he has given to us? Right? What platform has he given you? What power has he given you? What influence has he given you and how are we using it? Are we using it to reflect Jesus or are we using it to get our own way? Are we using it to get comfortable and get what we think we deserve? Because that's not what Jesus did. And because he didn't use his authority in that way, that's why we stand here today worshiping with hope. Because he laid down his life for us. In our marriages, you know, in our children, in our work, we model Jesus? Lastly, I'd like to talk to those in here who, who may not be Christian or who may be sort of these nominal Christians. Yeah, saying all the right, right words, maybe growing up in church, speaking fluent Christianese, as people, people say, right? It's like these specific Christian words that only Christians know, right? I knew Christianese before I was a Christian, by the way, just so I know. Uh, like, have you think about the terminology we use? Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Have, have you thought about how strange that may sound to a non believing person? You, you what? Washed in the blood of the oh, Lamb? Okay. We use these terminologies that a lot of us, you know, maybe you grew up in church and maybe you know all these terminologies. You know these Christianese terms. What is keeping you from running into the arms of a savior? A moment with Jesus is going to change your life, but it, you know, it's not going to make your life easy, but it will transform it. We see the most. We see that most likely in our verses today we had soldiers who mocked Jesus at the governor's house who came to faith through what they saw in him. Um, we see that it is even likely that Simon the Cyrene who spent a brief moments with Jesus carrying his cross likely came to faith. At least you can build a case for it. A few brief moments with Jesus can transform your life. Now, lastly, what's not mentioned in Matthew, but is mentioned in other Gospels, is so those thieves that are mocking him, one of them, after spending a few brief moments with Jesus, gives his life to him. All he says is, Jesus, remember me when you go to paradise, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Man, think about that promise. Think about how unable he was to do for anything for God. There was no way for him. He was stuck on a cross. All he could do was say, remember me, and hope for the grace of God to come to him. And some people, some, some sort of nominal Christians, have decided that, yes, I will place my faith in God, but really, my faith is in me. I think God is rather impressed with me. I think when I stand before him and I say look at all the things I've done I prophesied in your name I healed in your name you know all this stuff but that's in Matthew 7 and what does he say to those people I never knew you and so if you're in here and you've you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ I would ask that you do and what is keeping you from it you're not too far gone you haven't messed up bad enough for him to turn Away from you. Think about this. There's a soldier who was torturing him and mocking him. Simon the Cyrene, who helped you know, carry his cross so that he would eventually die. And then you had the thief on the cross who was mocking him from there, in no position to mock anyone. Putting their faith in Jesus, being transformed. So before we go into communion, I would like for all of us just to sit for a moment for maybe like 30 seconds and think about the authority of God. Think about how Jesus used his power and authority. Think about all the ways that you have influence and power and authority in your life and where we need to get better at looking more like Jesus. And as you think about this, let's just think a moment of silence for for 30 seconds As you think about this, think about this as well. Have you truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him as your Lord and Savior and no one and nothing else? Have you laid down your self-righteousness? Have you laid down your ambitions, your goals in life to just say, he's going to lead me his road? I just want us to close our eyes for a moment, think about these issues, and... uh, And then after that, if you are in here and you do want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you after this service and I would love to pray with you. If someone else is talking to me, just burst through the conversation and and come and talk to me. So let's sit for a moment for 30 seconds then I'll pray and we'll go into the communion. If you don't know how communion works, if you're a Christian in here, you confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you come up here, you take uh, uh, the elements, you sit down during this last song and then we celebrate together the broken body of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us. So let's just sit for a moment and think.